Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Jana DeCristofero and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Ducky. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. So today I'm really excited to introduce a new project that's part of Dear Dougie. Maybe you listen to other podcasts where sometimes they host guest podcasts and that's what we're about to do. And it's great because it means we have more content for you with not that much more work for me. And today we're going to talk with Amy Craig, who is one of our current volunteers at the Dougie Center about an exciting podcast that she's been putting together called Who Died? And we will be hosting episodes from Who Died in between our regular Dear Dougie content. So welcome, Amy. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about the podcast? Like, what can our listeners expect to hear? Sure. The idea for Who Died came out of my own desire to talk about my dad, who died nine years ago. Um, That I wasn't, I was his only child. My parents had divorced. There's not a lot of family around, so I just wasn't finding spaces to just, like, share memories, talk about him. Um, and as I've talked to other people who have had someone die, they've had a similar experience where sometimes it's hard to find spaces to just share about your person. So each episode of Who Died is just a conversation with someone about a person in their life who's died. Um, them sharing their memories, sometimes sharing photos or other memorabilia they have of that person. Well, thank you mm-hmm. for creating this space for people and for us as listeners to get to have a little window into who these people were and why they were so important. So listeners, today we're going to have our first episode of Who Died, and then we're hoping to be able to post one about... Once a month, about is my goal. Yeah. Okay, once a month. <laughs> and eventually, uh, the hope is that Amy's podcast will take off on on its own and will no longer be under the wing of Dear Dougie, but for now we're really excited to host it. So thank you, Amy. Thank you. We don't often ask people about their deceased loved ones, but I can guarantee you that for many of us, our dead family members are on our minds all of the time. I was my dad's only child and my parents divorced when I was a toddler. Since he died nine years ago, I've struggled to find places where it feels acceptable to talk about him. And at the same time, I feel a deep responsibility to make sure he isn't forgotten. I'm creating this podcast as a community of remembrance. We can learn about each other's dead people, both how they lived and how they died, since both really have an impact on our relationship with that person. And we can share the responsibility and honor of remembering. So tell me, who died? And how did they live? Today's conversation is with Doug Wells. We talked in July 2017 at his home in Southeast Portland. Her her name um, was Neely Louise Cherry Dillon Wells. Um, And she was born August 5th, 1971 and died December 16th, 2015. We met in, I think, August of 94, and then we went on a date finally in October of that year, like October 1st or somewhere right around there, Um, and we went on a date, and three days later she moved in, 
and six months later we got engaged and six months after that we got married I guess that's love at first sight I mean we were like just clearly really liked uh, each other's company and companionship and like being around each other very quickly Uh, we just sort of settled into a life and started wanting to have kids and um, she had um, she had had her ovaries out before I met her so she, but she kept her uterus, so we always knew that she couldn't, she couldn't, we had to use in vitro. And then we tried a second time, and it did, it, it did take, I guess, and Dylan was born in May of 99. Um, our miracle baby. Yeah. Yeah. She was a great mom. Um, I, I would say, um, you know, she got diagnosed when Dylan was six months old, or maybe she was eight months old, but you know, before a year old. And so Dylan's whole life and her and Neely's almost her entire time being a parent was like the context was having cancer. And like, we, I mean, when she was diagnosed, um, she was told she had two weeks to live. Um, so we like, um, like I remember Dylan's first birthday, which was. I guess of three or four months after she was diagnosed, like we just made like these milestones where we would uh, like Dylan's first birthday was the first milestone. We're like, okay, you got to make it to her first birthday and we'll have this big party. Um, so we got in this mode of having big parties because they were like these milestone celebrations that we weren't sure if Neely was going to be around for another one. So like, let's, you know, let's go all out. Let's invite everyone here. Let's have lots of presents and make it sort of decadent. And, um, we did that for Dylan's birthday, and then Neely's birthday's in August, and we her for, we started a tradition of having... It started about being her birthday party, and then it became just a summer party, but it became a pig roast, which by the end we had it... I think the last time we had it was maybe four or five years ago, and we had like 325 people here for it. So it became like a huge party, um, very fun, very over-the-top and um, we had travels and different things that were sort of, I, I would say, all related to the fact that sort of for, for Neely's entire, you know, 16, 17 years uh, of fighting, uh, fighting cancer, like, we never knew if she was, you know, how long she was going to live. So it was like we always really took seriously, like, living in the moment and celebrating and traveling together and doing fun things and and to the detriment of uh you know me having any kind of retirement or saving for Dylan's college or things like that but you know you do what you got to do mm. you know, she most of her most of her time she didn't work full time if if she worked either part time or she did a lot of volunteering work in in schools and stuff and um um she really poured herself into that um we both did like we I became, you know, like on Dylan, when Dylan went into kindergarten, like I, I took Neely to chemo that the day, whatever, some day, like right when kindergarten started. And we came from chemo and went to the PTA meeting and I became the PTA president that year. And and Neely, that, that year it wasn't on the board, but then was really involved with the school for all nine years that Dylan was there. And did a lot of stuff at the district level. Like she just cared about schools and about volunteering. Uh, during the 17 years, she was never 
in remission or cancer free or without like not she was either in surgery recovering from surgery doing radiation or chemo the entire 17 years like never never a break from that so um we were never um far from it um did she ever just get fed up uh, like every day yeah i mean that was one of the i think one of the hardest hardest things um was that she had a very public face of, of uh, strong, can do anything, can party with the best of them, you know, always good for a friendship or a laugh or whatever. And then privately, it was really hard. Like she would, people would leave from the party and she would, you know, throw up or fall into bed or, you know, get sort of angry or sad or whatever. Um, and that, you know, that wears on Dylan and I too, because then we see like her best side is the side she's facing publicly and the side that we see wasn't always as pretty. Um, but I, you know, and I, I understand that and I supported that and I, you know, I, I don't think that there was anything wrong with that, but it was hard. We always thought that it was more important to have the party and do that than to worry about, you know, the fact that, you know, it sounds, I mean, she was going to be sick from it, we know, but it was worth it. So we never, we never second guess that. I mean, 2013 going into 2014 was, she was the sickest, um, barely got out of bed for months at a time, just really bad to the point where like we sort of thought that she might die. We were doing chemo one time, and um, we were sitting next to these, this soldier from whatever the fort is in Washington. They were telling us their story, and he said the reason he was there was because he got um, prostate cancer, and he was young, I don't know, 30s. And um, as a SEAL, he can, go, he can be stationed anywhere in the world. So he, he picked um, a place that you know, near the best doctor in the world for prostate cancer, which is Tom Beer at OHSU. So he got stationed there and he was down being treated by Tom Beer. And we sort of got into this sort of technical talk about like cancer. And he talking about how Dr. Beer was like, he thought of cancer more, less about body parts and more about the molecular side of cancer. And, and one of the things Neely knew all along was like her kind of cancer, her ovarian cancer, was a, str a strain that was closer to prostate cancer than maybe a lot of uh, historically like, uh, you know, like breast cancer or ovarian cancer, normal strains. Um, so on a whim, like she reached out to Dr. Beer and was like, you know, I know you, uh, you'd be surprised to talk to me, but, I, you know, can I be your patient? And he's, you know, to his credit, he said, well, I've actually never had a woman as a patient, <laughs> but sure, let's, let's talk. And it turned out that there was this drug, this, this new drug on the market um, that was very experimental and not approved yet, but potentially was something that would be good for her, her, uh, the type of cancer that she had, um, so that commenced, you know, and, and that's, you know, Neely gets a hold of something like that and she's sort of dogged and determined and will, you know, fight the system tooth and nail. So we sort of, you know, tried to get into that and there was, you know, this was like a $10,000 a month pill. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not something that, you know, unless you're 
incredibly wealthy you can't you just can't do it on your own you have to have insurance and the insurance was like you know no you're you don't have prostate cancer. There's This is not even approved by the FDA. We're not going to do it. And so we went through this long process of sort of fighting the insurance company and doing appeal after appeal and getting, you know, there, there are a lot of doctors who were saying like, well, you know, this this could make sense. You know, we, we can get behind this and give it a shot. Um, and there was like, uh, I don't know, there's there's there are like FDA trials where you can sort of, sort of like a hard case thing where you say like, you know, look, I don't have any other options. So we want to try this. Anyway, we went through all this and, um, ultimately, um, we won and she got to start taking this drug. So she started taking it in 2014 and, um, she just was, it was remarkable. It was, it was almost, you know, it, it was too good to be true, but it was, um, her numbers, you know, there's a cancer marker that they watch in her blood and her numbers were incredible off the charts better. She was, she went from like, like I said, like barely getting out of bed for months and the worst of her life to like fully like engaged with life and doing really well. And unfortunately, I mean, what ended up happening was this drug really worked well on her body, but you know, it, it, um, there's this whole science behind the sort of the blood brain barrier where um, the brain keeps chemicals and things out of the brain. And um, what ended up happening is it kept this drug out of the brain and the cancer spread into her brain. So it ended up being um, uh, by that fall, like it was my 50th birthday that year, and we were in Hawaii celebrating my 50th, and she was clearly, for the first time in a very long time, because she had been doing so well, was starting to like, not feel well and was it, it, it's hard to you know it's it's not always easy to know exactly what's going on but something clearly wasn't going well and by December you know we had was, this was late November and by mid-December she had uh, you know had a bunch of tests and turned out she had cancer in every lobe of her brain that was always her biggest nightmare yeah. um, having it in her brain mm-hmm. um, she had talked about that before. yeah I mean we talked about it over the year I mean she always felt like she could control, like she could, you know, cut off body parts or cut out tumors or do radiation or whatever. But she always felt like if it was in her brain, it would, you know, she wouldn't like she was she was she cared a lot about her mind and her intellect and her ability to advocate for herself and for others. And she felt like once it was in her brain, she wouldn't be able to that would be compromised. And she was like, I won't even know what I don't know. So it was it was. It was her worst nightmare, um, our worst nightmare, and you know we we got knocked down and got back up and tried to fight it for a little while, and, and um, you know it wasn't too long before the doctors were just like, you know, we're we're not going to do this treatment on you anymore. It's too dangerous, and it's really not doing any good. So, uh, and then you know she was able to then say, okay, I'm going to own my last months. You know, I, I know I'm going to die. I don't know if it's a week or a season or six months, but I know it's coming now. Neely wrote in a blog post dated July 24th, 2015. I'm no longer going to refer to this next type of information as a medical update. I'm beginning to understand through an excruciating journey the last 16 years that these are emotional 
or life updates with some medical facts interwoven. As of today, I am stopping all anti-cancer treatments. The FDA denied my doctor's request to increase from 2 mg mechanist to 3 mg mechanist. That means there is no promising treatment that will lend me substantial time and quality of life. For a long time, that would have scared me badly. I have been months without anti-cancer treatment, and I feel non-toxic and powerful. We are all exploring the paradox that I am as strong and vital as I've been for a third of my life, and my body and my brain are becoming more and more addled. Now, I feel safe, peaceful, and settled in the understanding that I have made the right decision for me, with deep support from many family members. I feel deeply sad not to see you all after I've died, and I can't imagine not having Doug and Dylan as a daily part of my life, but for me alone, selfishly, this is such the right thing to do. I haven't signed up for hospice, but I will. I am determined not to spend any more time in the hospital. I have options for home care and could take active steps to reduce my time living with cancer. For now, I am too exhilarated that I am alive, and I don't plan to give up any sweet time. I do have an amazing team of healthcare workers who want nothing more than to support me and make sure I am comfortable. I have Rue back at my feet. I will spend the next 12 days in Central Oregon, first with my mom's family and then with my dad's. Later in the month, we will go to Colorado Springs to see Doug's family. There will be no pig roast this year, but I bet there will be some tequila. Mark thought it would be helpful if I state a few things directly, even perhaps uncouthly. This decision acknowledges that science has an end and I will die from this disease. I win because I stubbornly declare myself the winner. And the most likely end is that I will die in the next months, seasons from now at the longest. On the question of what you might say to me, tell me I'm beautiful and powerful and you will be watching over my family. Tell me I've made a difference and your world is just a tad brighter. You can also tell me that I'm a self-serving pain in the ass, but I won't love that as much. I'm tired, wiped out even, and also completely content. I'm off blog for now. Love to all, Neely. But that picture is was a, we hired a woman to do a, a, a bunch of family portraits for us. Um, and I think that was August maybe of 2015, and Neely died in December of 2015, right before it really took over, which I would I would say was, you know, like maybe October. By October, she was sort of a different person. Um, so that was, I mean, she always liked these pictures, and she wanted, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing for me to have like one that's like, hundred inches big or however big <laughs> it's not quite that big but it's huge um but she really wanted a big one um and in fact when she was uh starting to have problems in her head uh, she kept wanting me to get like three more that size to put on the wall out here and I kept putting her off but she was certainly with it well enough to know that I was putting her off so <laughs> it didn't go very well uh the last time we went out to dinner together it, her Uncle was in town from California, and uh, her sister Lainey and her wife, Lainey's wife Megan, we went to dinner together. And this by this time, she was de- she was definitely in a wheelchair, and we um, like had to carry the wheelchair down the stairs because we don't have anywhere to get up here without stairs. And but we went to this restaurant, Renata, and uh, she just sort of held court, and she like was engaged and happy and like talking to everyone and having really good conversations and accidentally drank someone's wine (laughs) (laughs) accidentally (laughs) accidentally um 
So it was it was a really sort of a memorable evening. And then at the time, we obviously didn't know. I think obviously we didn't know that that was the last time we were going to all go out. But um, I, I mean, soon thereafter, she like we had to get a hospital bed, and sort of everything changed, and she could you know never really leave the room again, mm-hmm. or even really the bed. Um, this in December we were gonna. I mean, she she had it all planned to like we were having Christmas and we were having the family Christmas on the twenty sixth, and then she was gonna die on the twenty seventh. Um, she had it all like it was all planned out, and then you know, life got in the way. <laughs> and she uh, and, and I remember like the she died on the on the sixteenth of December, and um, a few days before that, or a couple days before that, we were supposed to we had to call the doctor. And verbally say to him that we still wanted these drugs to do the death with dignity. And I had to call the doctor and lie to him and say that she had another appointment come up or something. So she would call it because she couldn't at this point, she couldn't even talk anymore. And mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if she was going to die or if she was just going you know, in a downturn, she's going to get better. Um, but it turned out that you know it was sort of the she went down pretty quickly after that. Um, by the that night that she died, I, I think we ended up probably with thirty or forty people in the house. Um, yeah. Anyone who could, uh, friends or family who could make it, did and said said their goodbyes. And then we uh, nearly loved to push tequila shots on people. That was a big thing for her. So we we all did a tequila shot in her honor, including our sixteen year olds. <laughs> but that was okay. There's this artist, um, Sam Baker, who's sort of a alt-country, folky kind of guy that Neely and I both liked. And years before, probably soon after she was diagnosed, he put out this song called Waves, which is about this um, guy whose wife dies, and he's walking down to the waves and draws her name in the sand, and the waves wash it away. Anyway, so... I'd never let her hear that song because it was too. <laughs> it was like I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do it. But I always knew, like for 14 years or whatever, that I would play that at her memorial service. So many years, so many hardships, so many laughs, so many tears, so many things to remember. Cause they had 50 years And now the kids They got their own kids And their own kids grown She told him not to worry Said he'd be fine When she was gone Walks down to the ocean Bends to touch the water Kneels to pray Writes her name In sand Wait, wash it away You know, did I, do I wish that we, you know, grew old together and died together? Sure, but... We sort of lived every moment together and um, fought together, like fought cancer together, fought each other sometimes, not very often, but uh, like we 
lived life to the fullest and I, I feel um, so grateful, you know, I mean, who she was and who we were together and who we are as a family was so, like, I can't even imagine separating out the context of cancer and fighting cancer from that anymore because it was just, it's too much a part of who we are and I wouldn't I mean it sounds terrible I don't think I, I mean I can't change it it's it's what it is and we I think we did a pretty good job of making the most of it but she's she's definitely always there especially in that big ass picture at the top of our stairs <laughs> <laughs> he writes her name in the sand and waves I wash it away Thanks for listening.